Thank you so much for the kind invitation for me to be here. Pastor John and Pastor Steve and Pastor Sam have been, become dear friends. And uh, thank you for your kindness and having me here. Um, if I may just take a moment of personal privilege and just ask you to pray for our institution as well. I know how selfish that might sound. We are going through some transitions at this stage in the history of our school. The Lord's been very gracious to us. But as we go through it, uh, you have been such a good friend and partner to us in our seminary, and we covet your prayers as we go forth as well. Um, uh, it, it, coming to Crossway in August, which I've done for the last few years, has been a highlight of my summer in many ways, because when I do come, I get to talk to all the pastors and talk about their travels and how much they travel and how I don't. And so it both saddens me and encourages me, but to be, to be in Irvine from uh, Escondido, California, this is my summer trip, that is my highlight. Uh, <laughs> This is where I grew up. Uh, uni High is where I graduated. I think I might have mentioned to many of you before. So it's good to be home and good to be able to share God's word with you. We have a brief time today together. So let's begin with a word of prayer and, and, and jump right in. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. We thank you for your invitation into your home so that we may meet you, hear your voice, and praise your name. We thank you for surrounding us with good people both members as well as pastors of the church, O oh Lord, who challenge us and who model for us what it means to live for Christ. We thank you for our families and our daily tasks that we adhere to each and every single day throughout the week. We recognize that these are things that come from your gracious hands. We ask that you grant to us thankfulness of heart as well as lips that sing praises to you. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. We remember him. We exalt his name this morning as we open up your word. Teach us, O Lord, as our great discipler, so that we may not only understand, but apply these things to our lives. For we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Here's the scene. There were two groups of people who were baptizing near Jordan in the first century. The first group was led by a name John. And in fact, later on, he came to be known as John the Baptist. They were the original baptizing group in the Judean countryside. But there was a second group led by an upstart named Jesus. And this Jesus fella was the Johnny-come-lately of the baptizing groups. And he was drawing a crowd to himself to actually baptize them in the name of the Lord. If the incumbent group remained popular, perhaps nothing would have happened. Nobody would have cared in terms about what's going on with Jesus and his followers. But the problem arose when the new group, the Jesus group, gained a greater following than the group that actually followed John the Baptist. He was the popular one, after all, but now he was losing people to this Jesus group where everyone was going. You can hear the sense of frustration as well as the question mark upon the disciples of John the Baptist when they ask, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. The point seems pretty clear. John is no longer the most popular, the most successful, or the most recognized among the religious leaders of his time. His disciples see and hear of his declining star power and begin to wonder what John will or should do. I'm sure this was disappointing to the disciples when John turns to them and says, he must become greater, I must become less, according to verse 30. In a doggy dog world when self-promotion 
is both expected and encouraged, the text presents something completely countercultural, a characteristic of faith that's different than what the world sees is priority for our lives. And it's a characteristic that we commonly refer to as humility. Humility. It's often talked about never all that intensely pursued traits of those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this morning as we turn to the text, in the life of John the Baptist, we do want to see humility in action, what it looks like and how it began. There are three things that we want to touch upon briefly this morning. First, beginning with the notion that humility begins with a proper view of God. That should not surprise any of us. Humility begins with a proper view of God. When his disciples approached him with anger and frustration, John answered them with a simple statement that probably did not satisfy his disciples in verse 27 when he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, the recognition that John is displaying here is the recognition that whatever he has, whatever he had, do not belong to him, but were given to him. He's a recipient rather than the one who gives things out. This is the struggle that I have with my children. There are 12 and 10, Anna and Simeon, and the struggle simply relies upon who owns this home. Do they own the home? No. I give them free lodging for a while. They will surely pay one day, right? I give them free food during this time. I give them rides wherever they go. But the problem becomes when they start believing that it's their car, it's their food, it's their house. I don't know if your children feel the same way, but my children are certainly like that. I resented because they need to recognize that these things do not belong to them. They belong to me. Unfortunately, a similar thing happens to us in our recognition and relation to God. Nothing we have, whether tangible or intangible, belong to us. It belongs to God. It's his. This is what he wants to say. Nothing that he has comes from himself, he says. This is to recognize that God is at work. He's the one who rules and reigns over all things in our lives, both big and small. We use complicated words like sovereignty of God to indicate the fact that God is in charge. It's the belief that God created and sustains all things in life, including the providential care of his own sons and daughters. John is convinced that God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all things in life, including things that he himself has received. This is the problem that you and I often have, that what we have, what we possess, belong to us. In Paul, in writing to a similar group of people in the church of Corinth, as they keep thinking that whatever they possess is theirs, he rebukes them in chapter 4, verse 7 by saying, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's the recognition that these things are not your own. These things come from the gracious hand of God. And ultimately, we recognize that these belong to him. It's his for the taking. This is what John understood. He possessed the proper sense of God's bigness, his sovereignty in all matters of life. 
Our successes belong to God. Our failures are in God's hand. And if God is indeed in charge, and if he does not make mistakes, contentment should rule the day because God did not make a mistake and God cannot make mistakes. This is the first question that all of us needs to begin with in terms of humility by asking the question, do you believe that God is indeed in control over your lives? Do you indeed believe that all things that you have, have had, and will have belong to his gracious hand? Because our proper view of the bigness of God then allows us to set up the second thing that comes up, which is the second point, humility, requires an honest view of self. Not only does it dictate our view of God, it requires an honest view of self. A proper view of self is heavily dependent upon our view of God. When God becomes bigger, we become smaller. When we become bigger in our lives, God then becomes smaller in our daily understanding of who dictates our lives, like many of you here. Living in a city like Irvine, John had reasons to think himself quite big, important. He was a prophet. As a witness to Jesus Christ, John is more than a prophet. He was a messenger who precedes the Lord, and as he says, he has come to prepare the way of the Lord. He's intimately connected to power if Jesus is bringing power onto his people. When he was born, he was born under very conspicuous circumstances. I found out in the earlier service up in Brea that your church will be celebrating your 10th anniversary uh, next month in September. My son was born September 2007. So now I know when your church's birthday is, I can pray for the church as I pray for my son as well. When he was born, did you know that, of course you wouldn't, but you know, let me just tell you, <laughs> it was the year of the golden pig. You know what that means? It comes back every 500 years, and everyone around me told me, your son's gonna make something of himself. And I'm thinking to myself, pig doesn't sound all that exciting, but it's a year of the golden pig, saying that any son, there, was, there were huge attempts in Korea and Asia uh, of trying to have sons that year. We didn't try, it just happened. The point being, you are considered someone special if you're born that year. Now, this is not the kind of special I'm talking about. When John the Baptist was born, everyone knew it. Not only that, even when he was in his mother's womb, when Jesus' mother Mary came into his presence, according to Luke, he jumped in his womb, meaning that he recognized the Messiah far before anyone else. He was a special baby to begin with. Even further, he was compared to Elijah, that very prophet who never died in the Old Testament. Remember the kind of clothes that John the Baptist wore? There was an intentionality, wasn't there? Because those are the clothes and the food he ate were not just to indicate to us some kind of dietary plan. It was to show that he was just like uh, uh, Elijah. Because the predictions in the Old Testament basically said that when Jesus the Messiah comes, he will be preceded by an Elijah-like prophet. So everyone recognized John the Baptist as this precursor to Jesus Christ. Now, a man endowed with such history and personal record is not surprisingly successful in his ministry. 
popularity of John was well known. According to Luke, multitudes went out to hear him. Not only multitudes, they came from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the regions around Jordan, scripture records. Not only did they come from many places in large numbers, even those who are in power wanted to hear him. That the Tetrarch at that time, the king of that area, Herod invited him to speak. In fact, we are told over and over again, Herod wanted to hear John the Baptist preach until he said something negative about Herod. You may recall later on, pursued by his daughter, he actually beheaded John the Baptist. But until that moment, John the Baptist was a favorite preacher of the leader of that time. Just imagine what that scenario might look like this day. Large crowds, powerful people from all over the country came to John. Not surprising. You would think that he would have a decent-sized head as a result of it. However, the reaction that John shows is somewhat quite different. When we ask, what does he say of himself? This is what he says in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Now, the translation you're seeing there is the NIV. That's the translation I grew up with called New International Version. The translation I'm reading is the ESV, which is the English Standard, Standard Version. English translations are very similar. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word for the same. The anointed one is what it means. And here, the translation simply has it, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. John is actually referring to an event recorded two chapters earlier in chapter 1 of John, where the leaders of the Jews, disliking his popularity, came to test him try him, to be honest, and they asked him who he was. I always found verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1 funny because when the question is asked, who are you? Most translations, including the ESV, translates it by saying, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Who writes that way? It's repetitive. But there's a reason why it's written that way. It's to point out that what he is about to say should be highlighted, underlined, italicized, and bold-faced. Because what John says is, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. This is John's testimony. On the one hand, he testifies that Jesus who comes after him is the Lord, the true Christ, the Messiah. On the other hand, he testifies that he is not the Christ. I am not the Christ. You are not Christ's. I wonder if we understand that sometimes. Parents who are here, who are struggling through toddlerhood, surviving, who figure out just the child in, and then they go become teenagers, and then you figure a teenager out and they become older and they leave, and then they later say they want to marry. And there are so many things outside of our control. And here, I just want to tell you, you are not their Christ. Pastors and elders and deacons who daily worry about ministry and how things are going, whether it's growing or decreasing, whether my sermon is good, pastors who curl up on Monday, I'm sure Pastor John doesn't do this because I'm sure he hits a home run every single Sunday. But for people like me who on Monday morning curl up and says, nobody loves me because I just bunted my way forward, here, you need the reminder that I am not the Christ. 
Do you know what's an indication that we think we are Christ's? It's our growing sense of independence. Do you know what shows us that we think we're independent? Is when we don't pray. It's when you believe in yourself that you can do it because the world tells you you can do it. But friends, you are not Christ's. You are not Christ's. I am not Christ. God is at work. Only he is the Messiah in our lives. Which leads us to the third characteristic of humility, which is humility forgets self before Christ. Humility forgets self. It is not that John reluctantly recognizes Jesus Christ. No, no. He finds great joy in the glory of Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, we're told. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, John says. He uses an illustration of a wedding. John sees himself as the best man to Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom had a unique place in the Jewish wedding. He acted as a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. Very helpful. Most of our best men weren't this helpful, right? He brought the bride and the bridegroom together, and he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when the dark he, in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad. He let him in and he went away rejoicing for his task was now complete. This is John. What's in, in, encouraging for us to see is that what surrounds our passage that we read this morning, it's enveloped book-ended by the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ. This might have upset some of John the Baptist's disciples, but this is the promise now being fulfilled right before their eyes. We see this in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right before our passage, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It ends our section in verse 36 where it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Here, John the Baptist cannot and does not bring salvation. Only Jesus does. Jesus is the one who comes and lives and dies and resurrects on our behalf so that by believing in him, we might have life. And John the Baptist already recognized this truth to be fact. He knows that Jesus is the Christ, not he himself. This grounds his attitude in life. If Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and I am not, our daily guiding principle in our lives is simply this. He must increase, and I must decrease. Christ must be exalted, and my name must be forgotten. All of us are seeking a name for ourselves daily, in our home, in our workplaces, wherever we are. And the simple reminder from Jesus Christ is that your name is unimportant. My name will be forgotten 20 years from now. It's only Christ's name that endures because he is the Christ who brings salvation. And they go hand in hand. His growing glory in me means decrease in my glory. This is not because our humility increases his glory as if us acting uh, humbly makes Christ's glory uh, greater, but our lack of humility clouds his glory. In our lives, in all ways, and 
before our children even, what they must see is Christ because he must increase and I must decrease. This is what uh, Paul is confessing to when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, listen to the words of Tim Keller when he says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It's about the audacious self-forgetfulness that this life and my future, it's not about me, nor is it about you. It's ultimately about Christ. And the question mark for us is daily, daily in our lives, is Christ exalted or is his glory hidden by the way we live, and the way we conduct ourselves? Friends, the world keeps telling us we have to self-promote. We have to talk about ourselves. And we see this so prevalently displayed in our social media. Social media is an open source place where we can see our sins beautifully displayed, right? We live with a Facebook, which is the way we arrange our thoughts and our lives so that others see who we are in the way we want them to see it. And in this, it only promotes and continues to encourage this life of self-promotion. May I offer you the scripture's antidote to it? Which is, as chief of sinners in self-promotion, here the scripture reminds us that when Christ richly dwells in you, your desire is simply to exalt him and you decrease. May the Lord richly bless you in order that in your life that you might be forgotten, you forget yourselves, but that in your life, by your spirit, Christ may be exalted and glorified. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we confess to you this morning at times that we hide your glory because of our self-exaltation and even more so, more benignly, self-focus. Whether actively seeking to hide your glory, whether passively forgetting about your glory in us, either way, O oh Lord, Lord, we forget what Scripture teaches us, that you must increase and I must decrease. We desire that, O oh Lord, in our lives, by your Spirit, your name be exalted. Lord, as you lead this church crossway in the way of the cross, allow them to be dependent upon you so that as church that your name will be proclaimed and honored. In the lives of many brothers and sisters that are here, O oh Lord, we pray that they may become ever more dependent upon you, remembering that you are at work and they're not God, and that they may be able to exalt your name both in what they say and how they live for the world to see as a testimony of your goodness to them. We thank you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.